We moved from property rights in uh, real property into secure transactions. We had some discussion of that this morning, people questioning whether there is a relationship when people have a secure title, whether it leads to uh, further commercial transactions. Uh, opening the panel for us uh, is a person in a great position to discuss this. Dale Beck Furnish, usually on these panels, speaks on property rights, uh, but he works both on property rights and secure transactions with the National Law Center for Inter-American Free Trade, which is connected to the University of Arizona Law School. Uh, Dale, however, before that, and uh, was for many years since 1972 a professor at Arizona State in Tempe, which, uh, you know, a few hours away from Tucson. But over the years, he's been closely associated with and been on the board of directors of and worked uh, regularly with the uh, National Law Center in, the, in its work of harmonizing the laws in the Americas, basically uh, an effort that started with NAFTA. Besides teaching at Arizona State and being connected with the National Law Center, Dale is also a professor at the University of Sonora, but he has visited at universities in Peru, Mexico, and Chile. He has taught throughout the various areas of commercial law. He has a case book on creditors and debtors' rights. He's been an arbitrator. He's a clerk at the Eighth Circuit. Um, Dale's just done a lot of things, and when it comes to this area of development work, certainly in Latin America, there are very few American lawyers, at least in the legal academia, who are really uh, have much spirit, have much experience in this area. And Dale is certainly among the top lawyers out there in this area. And pleased to have him with us because I've worked with him in the past, and he's always a great joy to be around. Dale. Uh, thank you very much, John, and it's a uh, pleasure to be here with the Federalist Society and with uh, those fellow panelists and those who are in attendance. Um, I do want to talk about uh, secured transactions and personal property rights, and I, I would introduce it simply by saying when you begin to look at the uh, effect of personal property and credit that personal property secures, uh, the impact is simply awesome. It's enormous. And uh, I think it's far, far beyond the concept of most of us. The United States and Canada use more credit than any society in the history of humankind by a lot. And the reason is uh, personal property-based security. Uh, real property is ancient. Uh, and it, it continues to be, and it, and it will never perish from the earth as a form of collateral. Uh, personal property, on the other hand, the ink is almost still wet on uh, personal property and its development. And if you think about what's going on in terms of uh, intellectual property and securitization, where the real property becomes uh, an asset that, that works through personal property, there's just so much going on in this area. Uh, and when we did assessments, which a couple of people have mentioned here, of countries in Central America, what we essentially found out was that the only personal property 
that was being used as collateral to any appreciable extent were automobiles, uh, virtually nothing else. And I, uh, I don't want to go too far into this or, or, or use anecdotes, but simply running into business people who were very, very capable business people and had comfortable lifestyles, uh, and you'd ask them, if you could get credit, could you expand your business? And their reaction was usually incredulity. They'd say, of course I could. If I could get credit, I'd triple, quadruple, uh, make my business ten times uh, what it is. The, uh, I think the watchword here, I, we've, we've kicked around a lot of the icons, and we've mentioned uh, Hernando de Soto. Um, I don't know if people read, I think they do, uh, The World is Flat and Thomas Friedman, but I, one of the points that Friedman makes is that this is all about change and development, that development comes through change. Uh, everybody likes development, but nobody likes change. And that's what we are. We are the agents of change. And so any vested interest group, be it lawyers, notaries, uh, regist registrars, uh, when they see us coming, they do not like us. And the other thing that uh, about this is this is a relatively boring topic. Uh, Wade Channel was talking about the ability to chase away uh, young women in Albania by talking about secured transactions. And, uh, and I, I can report a true story that uh, at, at one time my wife used to say occasionally, I can't sleep. Could you talk to me about secured transactions? Well, she, would, she would nod off pretty, pretty quickly. Um, <clears throat> at any rate, I, 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 there are a number of things that you can say about secured transactions, and it, and it has an aspect around the world. But let me talk more about Latin America and what's going on. Uh, and I would, uh, I, I'll, I'll make some sort of editorial comments as I get through this. But I am a big fan of free trade agreements, NAFTA and CAFTA DR, for, for, for perhaps a sort of a, uh, an underwater view of those and the impact that they have on societies and legal systems. And I am convinced that NAFTA has had a transformational effect in Mexico, mo most of which has occurred under the surface. But I, I'm confident, <laughs> I've been wrong before, but it'll be interesting to look back 15 or 20 years from now, and I think you'll see some transformations in Mexico, which it will then become apparent came about because of changes made in the wake of NAFTA, and, and really the incentive for those changes was, was pushed by NAFTA. Uh, and it's happening now in Central America with CAFTA, uh, DR that it's it's not so much what you see on the on the surface the uh, trades per se but it's what goes on in the business context in the uh, business atmosphere the law changes that occur under the surface and the attitudinal changes that occur under the surface uh, we have a we have a test case Mexico reformed its secured transactions law and it did that over a period uh, of probably about eight years working up to it, it reformed that law in the year 2000. And it really, in that law, wrote in 
sea changes, just revolutionary changes. And they, we've mentioned it here, but I'd mention it again. One of the uh, central issues here is whether you can register a constitutive or creational or uh, uh, a notary certified act, whether you must do that, whether you must actually inscribe the contract, the entire contract that creates a security interest. Um, maybe this is the point at which people start getting bored. But, uh, but whether you can do that or whether the legal system actually permits you to, to simply register a simple, uh, very summary statement that my uh, 13-year-old granddaughter could fill out in about 60 seconds. And, and that does a, a lot of violence to the traditions. But, but that really is where it begins. Mexico couldn't quite swallow that pill. So what Mexico did was say, we'll create two new legal mechanisms, and we'll allow you to summary file on those, but we won't touch this mass of other legal mechanisms that have built up over the years and don't get filed, or some of them get filed one place, some of them get filed another place. Uh, we won't touch those, but we'll, uh, we, we will bring along the idea of a, of a, of a summary filing uh, by Internet. Uh, credit institutions can do that. Notaries can do that. Uh, this is a revolutionary idea in Mexico. But as I say, they couldn't swallow the whole pill. They said, but we're only doing it on the fringe. We're not doing it for all. Uh, by the way, it does set up a system in which with a stroke of a legislator's pen, they can make it cover everything. And so as it begins to take place, I think this is a, this is a truly great idea. Um, nonetheless, the other sort of stumbling block out of many, and I'm not going into them all, is the execution that, that secured transactions depends on the ability of the lender, if the debtor doesn't pay, to go and get the collateral and get it quick, and get it relatively cheaply. Um, Mexico couldn't quite swallow that pill either. So it took a step back, and it actually complicated the process once it was brought to their attention. They actually complicated the process of the execution against collateral. Uh, they did, they've got one little uh, possibility out there for a trust deed, uh, but that's only in the case of a trust deed. Um, Mexico had a law that, that was passed in 2000. They amended it in 2003. And interestingly, um, Mexico looks like it's ready to make some amendments to that law again. And it languished a little toward the end of the Vicente Fox administration. But now that Felipe Calderón has come in, um, and that administration is looking for things that it can do, pushed by uh, a populist regime, uh, to the left, uh, they're they're saying, yeah, we should we should begin to um, make some changes here. Now, again, let me just quickly and John push me off here uh, when the time comes. But uh, one of the things that you see in the assessment process that I think we are blithely unaware of in the United States is if we just assume that, for example, courts basically function. They may be slow. They may give bad decisions sometimes. I mean, the courts do function. You, you do file a complaint. And it, you have to knock that concept out of your mind and say, consider a system where courts actually don't function. 
I mean, where you file a complaint, you may never get a decision. Uh, why waste the time? Um, consider a system, Mexico, ninth or tenth largest economy in the world the last time I looked, depending on who you look at, 75% of the population does not use a bank. I'll repeat it, does not use a bank. They simply don't go to a bank. And again, I don't know if that does any violence to your preconceived notions, but I, I pretty much assume everybody in the United States uses a bank. My kids, my grandkids use banks. And yet you've got a population where 75% does not use a bank, let alone use a bank as a credit source or try to set up secured transactions with personal property. So this is, this is what you're changing. And... Uh, or you're attempting to change. And I, I think you now have, uh, and I'll refer to them very, very quickly, you now have in Central America sort of a laboratory process going on. Um, and I, I, I can see there's, they're using the OAS model law of 2002. And I, I would commend it to anybody. Read that law. It's 71 articles long. Uh, it's a nice catechism of secured transactions in very short form. You can read it in Spanish, you can read it in English. Compare it with eBird's law and, and see some of the model laws that exist. Go online, uh, and I'd, I'd say again, the biz law reform website is just a treasure trove. If you, if you want to see if anyone's interested in doing pro bono or informing yourself of what's out there in terms of the business environment, Read those. Just pick a country and read uh, and see what's on, let alone the other goodies on that particular website. National Law Center also has a website, and you can find not only the model law, but you can find 12 principles of secured transactions on personal property. And I think what's happened is first Guatemala sat down with the model law worked it through, subjected it to legislative process, subjected it to the scrutiny of private sector groups, subjected it uh, to, to Bankers Association, uh, really, inquisition, and, and got a good version of a law, which then we took to El Salvador and, again, went through the same process, fairly intensive drafting process uh, with private lawyers in El Salvador, with the director of the commercial registry in El Salvador. And I, I got sort of a second generation model law through the Guatemalan process into the Salvadorian process. And then Honduras, <clears throat> which uh, with the change in the presidents, uh, I think at least I felt, I don't know if Octavio was more optimistic than some of us, uh, I thought, well, the the system has dead-ended in Honduras. It's not going anywhere. In fact, we got a third-generation law, draft law, out of the Honduran process. So you've seen the OAS model law go through these sort of three manifestations so far in Central America. I hope it will go through a fourth manifestation uh, when Costa Rica joins CAFTA DR. Uh, I'd also, the last comment I guess I'd make uh, with regard to this process is my personal feeling on, on having been involved in this and uh, watching it work is 
it's not just the secured transactions law. You can have, uh, and I'm a veteran of Latin America in the 60s when there were a lot of reforms and I worked with a Peruvian who referred to them as writing music. He said they're all lyrical reforms. They, they sing beautifully, but they have no, no impact uh, on society. And the idea in the 21st century, and with this particular reform, is, I think, a focus beyond that. It's the law is a start. It has to have a registry. It, it simply has no function or application if it does not have a registry. If you look at the history of the United States, and this is, this is a relatively recent phenomenon in the United States. It's a post-World War II phenomenon. I think the drafters of UCC Article 9 never would have predicted the kind of impact and development it's experienced in the United States. But one of the effects of the secured transactions reform in the United States was the reform of the bankruptcy system. The bankruptcy rules, the bankruptcy code, so forth, were reformed on the heels of Article 9, which came in through the 1960s. And then the bankruptcy reform starts in the 1970s with with new ba rules of bankruptcy procedure and a new bankruptcy code uh, by 1978. And that's, that has picked up awareness in Central America. So the better systems that you will see will be ones that incorporate not only the law, but a reform in the registry and the regulations of the registry will, in will include electronic commerce law reform, will include bankruptcy law reform, will include securitization law reform. And you ought to judge, if, if you are not totally bored and actually turn to this, these reform efforts, judge the reform effort by this holistic approach. If it is a holistic approach, it will work. And I think that's some of the concern in Guatemala. Guatemala has a very well-drafted law. It's an excellent law. Has, it has made no provision uh, so far for a registry. That will come along. I mean, they, they've done, but they haven't. If you want to see someone who's doing it right, look at Honduras. They're actually they're doing the registry. But Guatemala thinks at some point in time and some point in the future we'll get a registry. But let's get the law, um, and that will not go very far. So um, that's not all I know, but that's all I will say. Dale, am I right that Peru is at this point still only the only country in Latin America that has secure transaction law? Yeah, I, I wasn't going to mention Peru uh, by design. They they did pass a law as of July 1, 2006, and they're the only country so to date in Latin America that has it. It's modeled after the supposedly modeled after the OAS law, but I think it has great difficulties. Yeah, when when this started in in Guatemala, I knew a professor there who was also a practitioner, as most of them are. And, you know, he's generally a free market guy, and so I thought, well, you know, this is perfect. He and the National Law Center will get along just well. And uh, so I put them together, and, and the professor and I then talked. He says, this proposed law is totally inconsistent with our civil law tradition, and uh, the, <laughs> that's why I keep coming back to these things. I don't know whether that is a legitimate concern on his part or whether it was a concern reflected by some of the comments before. That is, the lawyers and others do not like changes coming into these countries. It's, it's very disruptive. But uh, when I mentioned Hamilton before, 
it was serious. I mean, we had the commercial revolution in our country between the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians, and fortunately the Hamiltonians won. Uh, otherwise, we'd be a third world country, too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, at lunch, I was talking with Emil, and he was saying, you know, what, what I think would really help is if uh, these assessments connected with practicing lawyers in the particular countries. And I think you heard from Dale that that's, in fact, what has been occurring in the way they go in with the model law and consult with, with various sectors of society. But I, I just want to mention a little more about how the assessments go more generally, or at least the ones I've been involved in. It's not Americans initially going in. It is the selection of locals who use criteria upon which these reports are based to go out and identify the people they think in the various sectors who should be, whom sh they should consult. They get the information, write a report, and the Americans come in and work with that local person and actually go back to the same people and find out whether the American is hearing and seeing the same thing that the local heard and saw. Now, it's not always the same, but there's kind of a negotiation that goes on here, to, not in the sense of compromise, but negotiation in the sense of the different perspectives. And I want to emphasize that over and over again because that's, again, what we're trying to seek in getting your input on these manuals so that it's not simply a single perspective. We, in the panels and in the manuals, we want it from the academics, from the think tanks and government agencies, and the private bar. And so we bring you the private bar. Emil Arca, partner in the Dewey Ballantyne firm in the New York office. I have to mention, I have mentioned others' degrees, but since he and I both got our JD at Michigan, I'll mention that. Uh, he represents <laughs> issuers, uh, underwriters, borrowers, lenders, uh, investors, and in various cr uh, cross-border transactions. Uh, he is a member of the Federal Society, the, the uh, Securities and Antitrust Practice Group. Emil, thank you for joining us. Thank you, uh, this, um, this subject is so broad that um, in, the, um, in the little time um, each of us has, I, I guess we've, we've each focused on the um, particular aspect of it, and um, for my 10 minutes or so, I'd like to focus a little bit on the perspective from um, what I do, which is the um, interaction between the um, international uh, uh, capital and bank markets and um, emerging uh, markets, uh, although, as we'll talk about in a moment, uh, the, the lines between the local markets in these countries to the extent they have a local fixed income market, um, most of them do not. Um, but uh, and the international markets um, is becoming increasingly uh, blurred, which is a good thing. Uh, just by way of background, uh, for a little perspective, when when I say what I do, um, for for most of my uh, legal career, fairly intensively for the last 15 years, I've been working on. Um, structured finance transactions from emerging markets. Um, structured finance is just sort of a 50-cent word for uh, really saying any sort of very complicated debt transaction. Uh, many of them are uh, securitizations. Uh, that is, the, the payment of the debt um, 
usually in the form of securities, uh, depends on um, the cash flow from uh, some underlying uh, asset. And, and that's the, the subset of these transactions that I'll, I'll focus on for our uh, time this afternoon. Uh, these, in turn, have involved uh, both companies in the emerging markets that have um, offshore assets, that is, people like exporters and banks who have payments coming from abroad, um, which uh, for purposes of this panel is of less interest, uh, as well as increasingly uh, onshore assets, that is, local assets, um, uh, all sorts of uh, local assets. Um, recent examples of transactions we've done have involved mortgages, uh, auto loans, uh, cash flows from infrastructure uh, projects. And um, I, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about what the concerns are of the, um, the international uh, investor, whether it's from the perspective of someone who's represented the international investor or just as commonly um, the um, local emerging market issuer uh, who's had to deal with the concerns of the international investors. So it, it's a perspective and a subset of issues that may be a little bit different from, say, uh, that of a microfinance uh, lender in Bangladesh who's making somebody a $1,000 loan. Um, and it, it involves, in fact, a subset of countries where people are comfortable uh, doing business on a cross-border basis. I, uh, in coming up here, I tried to do a quick count of the countries and the emerging markets we had recently done transactions in, and I think it comes to, in my group, about 19 countries, uh, which sounds like a large number, but uh, what it really means is that there are a whole lot of countries, including some of the ones that were mentioned uh, earlier today, that are really off the map uh, for uh, international investors, and, and, and not because necessarily, although it's one factor, that they haven't enacted the closest replica to Article 9 we can think of, but uh, usually for a whole host of um, other um, political and macroeconomic uh, issues. Uh, so out of the 19 countries, I would say that the um, majority have been in Latin America. There are others in Southeast Asia, uh, Turkey, uh, Middle East, uh, the former Soviet Union. Uh, but, but they are... In, what I would say is in the sort of a vast gray zone that is in the middle between countries that people think are absolutely hopeless from the point of view of having things like a functioning court system or having any process uh, that people can count on. Uh, for example, that would include, at least at the present time, um, most of uh, Africa from the uh, sub-Saharan region uh, north from South Africa. Uh, we've done deals, for example, in Egypt and South Africa and probably nowhere in between. In contrast, uh, most of Latin America is on the map. And, and the context for this, just to give you a quick context before I get into the three quick points I want to make, is if you take a step back from the point of view of the international markets, we are probably in one of the longest sustained emerging market rallies uh, that the markets have, uh, have seen. Uh, part of that is a, a general compression of uh, the risk premium that has affected uh, the credit markets all over the world, not just for, in the emerging markets. Uh, part of it is, is the lessening of the contagion effect 
that uh, used to occur in, um, in in other emerging market crises. And of course, all of this is cyclical. Uh, if you do this uh, long enough, uh, uh, been doing it upwards of 20 years, you learn to expect a succession of crises and new generations of bankers to default to. But it is true that at the present time, the market has gotten, depending on your view, either naive or very disciplined about distinguishing crises. You can see the differences in the reaction from the crises, say, in the 90s. In 1994, we had the Mexican peso or colloquially tequila crisis. In 97, the Southeast Asia crisis. 98, the Russian crisis, which uh, unfortunately also uh, coincided in the fourth quarter of that year with the long-term capital management um, um, concern in the United States. In 2001, the Argentine default. Uh, in 2002, the apprehension uh, about uh, President Lula's coming election in um, Brazil were, were spreads in particular in Brazil, widened out enormously. Um, what, what's happened in the last couple of cases, and in the absence of, of uh, comparable crises since that time in the last five years, is uh, people have started looking at um, the markets, I think, in more of a country-specific and transaction-specific way. So that's the background. With that, I wanted to make uh, three three quick points. Uh, First of all, I I agree with some of the comments that were made earlier today that in the grand scheme of things, while all these issues are interrelated um, and you don't want to get into uh, too much of a a hierarchy in ranking the concerns of foreign investors and foreign lenders, um, certainly for the types of transactions we do, the um, degree to which uh, some of these countries approximate the ideal secure transactions code is probably not the highest issue on on the list. In terms of feasibility, uh, there there are certain things that certainly rank higher in people's minds. I would say certainly one is, uh, if you want to use another 50-cent word, let's say legal transparency, or in the um, words of... uh, uh, a Central American lawyer who works at a bank that's a regular client of ours, whether it makes a difference uh, in a case we bring, whether the other lawyer is the brother of the judge. Uh, that's, that, that, those sort of issues are, uh, I would say, that's, that's one. Uh, a second issue, depending on what currency we're dealing with, is transfer and convertibility risk. Uh, some of the Many of the structures we deal with are designed to get rid of that um, either by having um, uh, offshore assets. But for the point of view of this panel, where we're talking about local assets, to the extent we're talking about people making payments in hard currency, um, transfer and convertibility risk um, either has to be mitigated in some way or uh, the pricing and the ratings on the transactions are capped at um, at the sovereign's rating, which is um, which is an issue because many times the deals and the issuers are, are much better from a credit point of view than than the sovereign. A third issue is um, just currency mismatch in general. To the extent people are trying to um, uh, borrow uh, 
in international markets in one currency and the assets are denominated in other. There are four or five techniques that are used to try to bridge that gap. But clearly, for the long term, the most promising uh, is um, investment in local currencies. We're beginning to see that um, in, um, in a number of um, structured products. In fact, uh, I would say out of the half dozen deals I'm working on right now in Mexico, the majority are going out uh, to investors in, um, in local currency. Um, and that, for both the domestic markets and for the international market, is uh, a huge issue. Um, uh, Dale was uh, uh, mentioning uh, earlier the uh, reforms that had taken place in Mexico, and, and they largely coincide with the development of both a local and, uh, as of uh, this month, uh, cross-border transactions in uh, Mexican securitizations of residential mortgages. Uh, any sort of medium to long-term fixed income market does not really uh, become viable in countries that have runaway inflation. Uh, as much as all of the other, and of course these things go hand in hand, they're interrelated, but as, as much as all the legal reforms matter and the political reforms, uh, one of the reasons why we have a mortgage market uh, now in Mexico, whether um, for short-term products denominated in pesos or for longer-term products denominated in UDIs, which is a, an inflation-indexed local currency, um, is because you have a Mexican inflation rate that is roughly comparable to that of uh, the United States. Um, you cannot have a debt market on any sort of um, with any long tenors um, where um, uh, you don't have the currency issue uh, under control. Finally, I would add, uh, in terms of things that are also important, is a local fixed income market so that when there's a next crisis, um, the international investor has a way to uh, trade the securities back into, um, into a local investor base. And that's one of the things, for example, we're doing again in Mexico, which does have such a market, is coming up with instruments that are fungible that can be traded back into the local market because that adds a lot of uh, liquidity. Um, second point, um, I, I don't want to rehash the discussion from earlier about uh, the civil law, common law uh, thing, but I'll, I'll just add my own perspective um, uh, to this. Um, I think there are trade-offs in terms of, uh, and I don't want to caricature them too much because um, you can end up sort of coming to extreme versions of what they each look like that don't bear much resemblance to the truth. But it is true that, generally speaking, the um, uh, civil laws are, are more formalistic. Uh, I, w I will say there are some trade-offs. Uh, certainly the thing that's helped us um, in um, uh, doing deals in, in common law, whether under uh, New York law or, or English law, is been in part driven by the fact that, um, at least for international deals, people want dispute resolution uh, for a, in, um, in England or the United States, and that it's therefore easier to uh, choose the law that corresponds to the form, although not, not required. It's also true that that choice is driven by the fact that the English-speaking world has the largest capital pool 
uh, in the world, and that generally the people who have the money like to pick the law to the extent they can. Uh, it gets complicated, right, because, of course, many aspects of our uh, transactions, particularly dealing with the local, local collateral issues, by definition have to be governed by local law. So we often have two or three laws that govern different parts of the transaction. But it's also true that one of the reasons uh, people like to choose this law is the enormous flexibility and creativity, the freedom of contract um, provisions um, bring to us. Uh, it is true, and I, I mentioned this not just from the point of view of emerging markets, but also other countries we've uh, done deals in, whether it's um, Japan or Western Europe, you know, oftentimes we'll come to people and we'll say, well, here's how we've solved the problem in another country. Can we use this type of structure there? And you will have a Dutch lawyer or a Japanese lawyer or, in, for the purposes of this discussion, a Latin American lawyer say, well, I don't think we can do that. It's not explicitly authorized by um, the civil code. And um, when, when you first encounter that as someone coming from a common law tradition where you can agree to anything so long as it's not prohibited, that's a startling uh, obstacle to encounter. Uh, having said that, on the flip side, um, I, I don't think we should paint our system as a, as a complete paradise. For example, one of the key issues um, that drives our structured finance market in the United States is, um, is that of whether there's been a so-called true sale of the asset, and uh, if you've ever had uh, trouble sleeping, to go back to uh, Dale's thing, you can read one of the examples that's given by any of the prominent law firms who practice in this area that basically says, you know, you've asked us what would happen in the Chapter 11. Would this be uh, dealt with by a court as a sale or as a secured transaction subject to the automatic stay? Well, you know, it's really hard. Uh, we went to the library. We, we read all these cases, and you go on for 20 pages. And then at the end of those 20 pages, you get to the word that the um, rating agencies want to see in our opinions, which is, you know, while there's nothing on point, we think a court would, they like the word would, uh, say that it's a sale. Um, when we first started doing comparable transactions uh, in the early 90s in places like Turkey and Mexico, um, wearing our American hats, we would go and ask a Turkish lawyer or whoever it was, um, well, um, could this transaction be recharacterized as a loan? And they would look at us like we were complete idiots and say, well, it says sale right on the cover. What else could it be? <laughs> and uh, I exaggerate a little bit. Some of them have uh, some concerns. Uh, there are some countries, uh, Philippines, Brazil, some others, where the economic substance of the transaction has undergone some scrutiny by, uh, by the local bar. But by and large, it's a pretty clean analysis, which is if as a formalistic matter it says sale and if in the particular country um, there's a registry where you register sales and so forth, you get a very clean assessment uh, from, from those lawyers. So there's a trade-off. I would also point out we also have a failing in common with the court systems, to the extent they're functioning court systems um, in developing countries, which is in both our countries and in theirs, there is an appalling lack of commercial knowledge um, in, the, um, in the judiciary. 
when it comes to complex uh, financial uh, transactions. I don't know how to solve that problem, really. Um, I, I think it has something to do with the ranks from which we, um, which we, we draw judges by and large. And um, I don't know how to solve it, but if you, I recommend to every corporate lawyer that you make an occasional field trip in seeing how complex financial transactions are dealt with. Um, sit in, as I have on, um, on uh, motions or, or judicial conferences and things, um, not, not when the opinion comes neatly typed and there's a rationale largely cribbed from somebody's brief on the other side, but um, listen to judges trying to grapple with things. I, I sat in on a call where a, a federal judge where, uh, you know, you expect that, of course, the, the quality of review to be somewhat higher, at one point told people uh, in a conference, I'm, I'm not a professional, I, I'm not a genius, I'm not a corporate lawyer. And, you know, people have to, with a straight face, nod and say, yes, we understand it's very complex and all that. And I have a lot of sympathy for them. It's not meant really as a criticism of any particular individuals because the same person has to spend their time hearing immigration cases, prisoners' rights cases, and what have you. But um, it's a real issue that I think is not unique to the developing markets. Uh, third point, and I'll make it quick. Um, in terms of a point of focus for this project, I, I would encourage um, focus on, um, on securitization for two reasons. Um, one is I think it's enormously important. I think um, if, if you look at the development in um, the developed markets, it speaks for itself. And on sort of good Hayekian principles, it should appeal to a group like this. Uh, to the extent that uh, the market is judged it important, maybe it is for a good reason. As you probably know, in the United States, the uh, securitization market is now bigger than the conventional debt market. That is the bank loan market and the, uh, the bond market, the straight bond market. Uh, and it's that there for a reason. It is enormously efficient to allow people to borrow against uh, an asset pool rather than their own credit. Uh, second reason I would encourage the focus on it is it lends itself to the type of technical fixes that um, this project is trying to um, undertake, and there are a whole variety of these. I'll just tick off several in no particular order. Um, tax laws. Um, one thing we, we encounter in some markets um, uh, is that interest deductions and um, uh, withholding exemptions only apply to banks. And, um, for example, we've now done a whole string of uh, transactions in um, a Central American country where we've had to interpose for purely nominal purposes a bank uh, on a parallel basis to the transaction that we are really doing with the capital markets um, because the law didn't really contemplate um, that you'd be paying interest to international investors. Uh, our client, uh, one of the banks involved, actually showed it to the regulator who said, boy, this is a really neat idea. Well, it's a neat idea, but it's enormously complex and somewhat artificial. And uh, it would be much easier if, um, if laws uh, treated um, the markets the same way they do registered banks. Uh, withholding tax, like all taxes that are transactional in nature, are um, simply a dead weight on, uh, on transactions. 
and are a big obstacle to accessing uh, international investors because the issuer simply has to gross up the international investor. Uh, foreclosure laws, uh, timing, uh, we're talking about countries where you can foreclose. Maybe I should start there. Uh, but uh, uh, timing it is an issue. Uh, again, one of the other things that's helped the Mexican mortgage market take off uh, is in recent years the foreclosure time has been cut in half. But you have to have a sense of perspective about this. Cut in half means four years to two years. Um, so what that means is it affects the efficiency and the amount of um, in the pricing and rating you're going to get credit for um, how many defaulted mortgages you typically have. You're going to get zero credit if there is no ability to uh, uh, foreclose or if it takes four years. Um, and then the whole issue of um, what I call transfer uh, problems, uh, transfer taxes, uh, perfection issues. Um, almost all securitization involves some degree of transfer, whether it's cast as an outright sale or some other entrustment mechanism. And um, those kinds of things need to be um, able to be handled um, efficiently. Um, if every borrower has to receive a notice and has to acknowledge it, uh, that will probably kill the deal. Uh, if there are, like we were trying to do an auto lease securitization in, um, in Turkey again, if it's going to cost hundreds of dollars to uh, change the title on the car, um, that won't be economic. So there are a whole variety of, there's a cluster of issues that deal with um, uh, transfer that have to be dealt with for these kind of markets to uh, operate efficiently. Uh, so I think I've reached the end of my time, but uh, that gives you a flavor of uh, some of the things that we're encountering. Thank you. Thank you, Emil. I think your example about the word sale really kind of summarized uh, some of the differences between the common law and civil law as a practical matter. Wade Channel is our uh, final speaker here. Wade is with AID in the EGET office, as I mentioned before. Weren't you with Booz Allen before? I was with Booz Allen. There's a lot of incest going on no, here. No, we I mean, traded for is, is that a... Yeah, they, 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 got the better, they got the better they deal. They got the better They did much better on this, actually. <laughs> Wade has lived in five civil law jurisdictions. He lives in Brazil, Guiana, Bissau, Croatia, Belgium, and then he added Louisiana. Uh, you should have said five civil law countries, not just jurisdictions. Okay. Wade's been very much involved in these clear CLIR assessments that we've been talking about. He's been in 10 countries on this, and he's just come back from uh, the assessment in Afghanistan. I was glad I went to Central America, not <laughs> Afghanistan. And he's helped develop the collateral projects that are ongoing after these assessments are done. And uh, thank you, Wade, for being with us. Great to be here. I. Uh I happen to – I describe myself as passionate about this subject. There are only other two other people living today who say the same thing. As uh, Dale warned us, it, it's a tough subject. Sometimes um, every year in law school, at least one person slips into an irreversible coma during the secured transactions class. That's because they don't know why it's passion rousing, which is development. The impact of the secure transaction system and the various things that go into it 
is one of the most important aspects of economic growth in the world anywhere. Not today, but in history. It has expanded the capacity of people to obtain lower risk, uh, lower cost access to credit. In other words, it lowers the cost and risk of lending, which makes credit more affordable, which makes it more available. And because of that, secure transaction systems, what I will call modern secure transaction systems, have a tremendous development impact. And despite suffering through that class, um, I am so glad that I did. I want to give an example of how these things work and what some of the differences are in the countries. We've, we've talked about civil and common law approaches. Um, I'm from the South. I'm from Georgia. You can't tell that from my CV. I just look confused there. But I actually grew up in Atlanta. And we tend to be concrete thinkers. We like examples of things. We're not like you New Englanders who can be very abstract and think big thoughts. We, you know, we like to tie it down. You hear us talk about pickup trucks and dogs and things like that. So I would like to, to help me out if you would imagine a cow. Just just to fix in your mind a cow, a healthy one, a valuable one. It can be a Holstein, a Guernsey. It doesn't really matter. A milk cow would be preferable for this example. Uh, I have a PowerPoint with, with the very powerful cow pictures in it, but that didn't really work today. Um, and imagine that this cow lives in Canada. Now imagine that, that due to cloning or perhaps just good export policy, an identical cow lives in Chile. Now, again, I want a healthy cow. What is the difference between these two? Well, I performed um, a very intensive digression analysis on this over the course of at least three beers one evening. And what I discovered is that although they apparently are extremely serious, uh, similar, there are some very significant differences. And in this uh, digression analysis of certain seminal bovine characteristics, what I found was that um, each cow will give milk, will produce fertilizer, uh, will have a career change eventually and go into the beef market. Uh, prior to that, can produce offspring. And in one place, it will produce financing, and the other it will not. In Canada, you can get a loan for your cow. You can actually lease your cow. In Chile, you cannot. I thought about this a little more and uh, did a second iteration of the same analysis. And what I realized, too, is that in Canada, you can get a loan for the milk produced, the fertilizer produced, the beef produced, the offspring produced, and the financing that is produced. In Chile, you can get none of these things. Why? Well, we, we can see that there's no particular difference in the cow. Um, it has nothing to do with the land or the air or the language. It is a choice. I like, um, in, in this kind of setting or, or the Cato Institute type setting, I like to put it as a question of freedom. In Canada and in the U.S. and in some other countries now, people are free to choose how they structure deals. In other countries, they are not. They're not allowed to use this cow, the offspring, the financing, the secondary financing, the leases, anything, because the law will not permit them to do it. It's not that they can't, but if there's a problem, the law will not be enforced. There is no enforcement mechanism to maintain it. So they're at great risk. In a modern pledge system, Parties choose what the collateral is, and I'd like to keep it pretty simple in terms of what collateral can be. It has three characteristics. First, it either exists or it will exist. No, I'll say this. It exists or it might exist. Uh, second, lenders find it valuable. They don't care what anyone else thinks. They think it's valuable. 
And third, the legal system supports it. If you have those three, you can use anything as collateral, with the basic idea being that if the lenders don't think it's a good bit of collateral, it really doesn't matter how much, how valuable you think your daughter's second grade picture of a horse really is in the real world, you're probably not going to get a bank loan on it because they're not going to find that unless your daughter happened to have been a famous French artist that's been dead over 100 years. So in a limited pledge, in a modern pledge system, parties choose the collateral. In your more, in your limited systems, and I don't say, I don't want to say ancient or any of that, these theories have derived over thousands of years, the, the various approaches to pledge. But um, in the limited system, the state chooses what collateral is acceptable for a loan. In the modern system, the market determines the value. In the limited system, the state determines the value. Usually a court assesses what the value, what they think the value should be. Uh, usually they're not very good at it because they don't understand markets. In the modern pledge system, a, the parties will define the enforcement mechanisms. They'll choose on it, choose what they can do. Uh, in the limited system, the state defines what enforcement techniques can be used. And finally, in the modern system, the law will support the choices of the parties, but in the other, the law will limit or restrict the choices of the parties. These are government choices. These are legal choices. These are not inherent in a system. Uh, these are not inherently civil nor inherently common. And I think in terms of understanding pledge, civil versus common is a smokescreen. I think it's a red herring. I think it's irrelevant at one level. At one level, it's very relevant. When you start drafting laws to fit within a system, you better know what's going on. And unfortunately, um, too many times American lawyers have, have volunteered and been very helpful in some ways, but they didn't know the system. They, it was like designing a a 110 machine for a 220 circuit. It looked like it would fit, but when you plugged it in, it didn't necessarily work right. So in that sense, it's extremely important, but let's face it, even 110 and 220, you can get the same machines to do the same kinds of things. You just have to adjust for them. So I will throw that out as a, as a provocation on the civil versus commons law side. I feel that um, it, it's important to note that the invention was in a common law jurisdiction. We're looking at a 60-year-old system. It's just new. It's not civil versus common. It's new. I have yet to hear somebody complain that because it was invented in America, because American common law systems uh, gave it life and protected the various interests, that because it was originally used for American purposes, that someone will not use the Internet today. It has all the same characteristics, but nobody's complaining. The big problem is that the civil law countries that are using this as an excuse are using it as an excuse for various reasons. Sometimes it's entrenched interests. The notary's making a good bit of money. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, a, it's a leap in understanding. It's theoretical. I, I can understand that. I have a hard time shifting paradigms on certain things. I don't want to be judgmental on it. I think it's, it's very understandable. But the fact is, it's, um, there's a need for rethinking. In the developing world, many countries look to their, if they have a colonial past, they look to their former colonizer, something I've never fully understood in some situations. I still feel like with the African former Portuguese colonies, it's like a, a therapeutic community for abuse victims run by the abuser. I just don't get why you want to be 
get the least progressive system in Europe as your model. But anyway, uh, that being aside, the, um, there's a tendency to look at these, and, and not all of the European, modern European countries, well-off European countries have this system. Germany is, is beginning to think about some of these things, but there's no German pledge registry system like we're describing. There's no French pledge registry system like we're describing. The problem with adopting those systems is if you're at $5,000 per person per year, such as Croatia, and you look to, to Germany at 40000 per person per year, and you adopt the same system they have having already arrived there, you put a spacer. They're going to go up and you're going to go up. You'll never get closer. You'll never close the gap because it's not a growth system. It's a result they've gotten there. Growth needs something new. If you want the same thing, do the same thing. If you want to change, you have to do something new. And that is very much missing in the mentality of uh, some of the folks that we've talked about who have resisted this. Very briefly, uh, these gentlemen have covered so well so many points that I had as well. The system allows a lender to analyze whether, first, a debtor can pay. And this is a big issue that we got into in land and in other collateral. Collateral alone is not enough for a loan. Banks don't care how much you own. They care whether you have a cash flow and can actually pay things back because they don't want you selling off things and they don't want to attach them and become landlords. They actually want you to repay the loan. So they start with a cash flow, but then they use the, the collateral to secure the debt. And the collateral lowers the risk by giving the lender an interest in the in that property, in that valuable property, which can be registered so that the whole world knows. We know this is constructive knowledge, as we lawyers say. Not everybody knows because nobody really cares except other lenders dealing with you. But the whole world is on notice that there's an interest in that. So it cuts down on fraud. And then the debtor and the and the credit well, the debtor uses the collateral to liquidate the debt. You get a loan to buy something, a piece of productive equipment. The money you make with that productive equipment is used to repay the loan. So you actually have this very healthy cycle going on. In the case of the default, the lender can attach the collateral and the courts will provide backup. And that's extremely helpful. When you know that your stuff can be taken away, you tend to reprioritize your loan payments. Um, the thing about cars, everybody knows of Repo Man and the fact that cars are constantly repossessed uh, not perhaps so much as you might think. Repossession of a car is a big money loss. They get about 10 to 20% of the value left in the loan when they repossess a car. However, everybody on the block where that car got towed writes a check to their finance company the next day. They know that their car can get towed, too, if they're not paying. Some of the impact, I'll give a, an example from Colombia. This is from work by uh, Nuria de la Peña and Woody Fleissig done in 2006. They looked at the benefits of pledge registries and, um, and collateral lending, and they used Colombia comparing it to the United States. In both countries, uh, business with about $100,000 cash flow can get an unsecured loan. And they can, it, we're assuming a fairly trustworthy business with a decent track record. Just on that, they can get an unsecured loan to anywhere $25,000, dollars $35,000. Uh, it's pretty equal in both countries. For if you have movables in Colombia, for vehicles only, you can take that loan up to about hundred, hundred and twenty thousand dollars $120,000, $150,000. In the United States, 
you can get more than $250,000. You add in real estate and you go to 500,000 in the U.S. and 200-something thousand in Colombia. There is a tremendous impact economically of your access to cash for business. That allows businesses to prosper. It allows businesses to get things. It reduces the costs and risks, both of which go into the price. So the higher the higher your risk, the higher your cost. The higher your cost, the more likely you're unable to sell or meet, meet your your uh, goals in a competitive market. It's it's a danger. Why does this reduce risks? It eliminates hidden interests for lenders, reduces possibilities for fraud, increases options for recovery, increases likelihood of recovery, improves payment discipline, and also reduces risk for borrowers by increasing liquidity. You don't have to, to give your only piece of collateral. You can take the, the residual value of collateral and get new loans on it. You can buy something new and get a loan on that. It avoids catastrophic loss. If you put your home on the line for a business deal and the business goes sour, you're not only unemployed, you're homeless. So the catastrophic side that has been mentioned is why bankruptcy lawyers, at least in this country, tell you never put your home up for a business deal. It's the worst decision you can make. And if you can't get a, a legitimate loan without putting your home up, you might want to rethink the business deal. They really advise against that. And it lowers costs for everyone. So it comes back to it's a matter of choice. There are governments and there are systems that are choosing to presumably protect people, protect them from themselves, protect them from making choices where they might go wrong. But in fact, these systems are punishing the economy. They're concerned rightfully about abuses, about bad practices, about predatory lending. We should be uh, concerned about such things. But do we punish everyone and is to avoid anyone doing wrong, or do we take some risks and allow a few to get punished along the way. The, uh, the proof is in the pudding to me. I think this is something that, that I want to see much more of. And for those of you who may be interested in doing this kind of work pro bono, I have to say I love taking lawyers out to the field who don't know development. So I invite you to join us. Um, so you can sign up now at this desk. Um, actually, I did want to mention I brought a, a paper that goes into some of the things I've mentioned and goes into a lot of other things I didn't mention. It's absolutely fascinating, scintillating reading, and I'm very proud of it. I was, Mother's Day is coming up. This is your opportunity to, to kill two birds with one stone, but peace, yeah, 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 yeah. sedate two birds with one stone at least. At any rate, um, Pleasure to be here. Happy to continue dialogue with you. You've got my email address on this paper. And come join us. Thanks. Thank you, Wade. You notice on his cow example, it was between Canada and Chile. And Chile is considered the most advanced of the Latin American countries. You can imagine what it would be in the other countries. Well, we have some time. Um, it's 2.19. We're going to close shop at 2.30. Questions, comments? Yes. I just have an observation, uh, and it's, uh, I might, uh, Wade and, and Dale mentioned uh, sleep. <laughs> and uh, I want to say that, uh, you know, it's after, after a lunch, uh, there, there's, 
multitude of reasons to go to sleep. To go to sleep. <laughs> and I want to thank the panel for not only being informative but entertaining, as well as our morning uh, earlier uh, panelists. Uh, and I want to give a little anecdote. Uh, Wade and I were in Albania. He spoke about uh, why you didn't want to talk about secure transactions in Albania because you put people to sleep. He and I won an assessment uh, in Albania, just the two of us. And he insisted that I deal with secure transactions. I thought he was deferring to me because I'm older. Now I understand why. Uh, anyway, I, I've enjoyed it. It's not a substantive comment, but I wanted to thank everybody for all these interesting uh, presentations. Good. Others? Yes, Nick. Um, again, uh, th thank you very much. Thank you very much. On, my be on behalf of USAID, I'd like to thank everybody for coming and attending this. I think that this is an exciting uh, beginning of uh, a potentially rewarding relationship with the Federal Society and another group of lawyers and experts, uh, you know, on these kinds of issues. I just want to amplify what Wade referred to. I mean, you know, right now we're just talking with John and the Federal Society about uh, getting some pro bono help on the technical publication. But uh, that doesn't mean that in the future, uh, maybe on future assessments, that, uh, you know, we would, uh, let me reverse it, that on future assessments we would welcome interest on your part to participate in these kinds of uh, endeavors, you know. We're hoping to do a series of assessments in Africa. These things tend to get very expensive when you use consultants, uh, so we'd like to get a mix of um, judges who are already paid for by the uh, American taxpayer and their salaries can't be reduced by, by virtue of our Constitution and they can <laughs> lend the time uh, to go to on, on these uh, things. But also if we can get some volunteers that might be interested in this and want to get exposed to a new, um, new sort of uh, experience, uh, we welcome that too. And, and Anne over here uh, might be a good person for you to think about talking to about that. Anyway, thank you. It oh. It is amazing to go out and look at the court system in another country, and, and uh, as much as I criticize federal judges, uh, <laughs> there is no comparison between the situation in the United States and, and elsewhere. The other thing, it seems to me, to bring it back to the security issue, we have a very strong interest in these states not getting any weaker than they are, Central America in particular. It's not only their past with the wars, civil wars, and other disruptions. The fact of the matter is that the drug dealers are going through there. The El Salvadoran gangs have left L.A., and they've gone back not just to El Salvador. They're in Honduras. Uh, parts of these countries, not all, not all of the country, but parts of the country are, are still dangerous territories. And... Uh, the phenomenon of terrorism in the world is really just one form of tribalism. Gangs and organized crime are other forms of tribalism. The reality is that outside of the Western Europe, in the United States, Canada, and Australia, there aren't any really strong states. Now, I'm not mentioning China because it's not really a state. It's an Eastern political organization. State is a Western invention. And one of the reasons that the United States finds itself in a defensive posture is not just because George Bush is president. It is because we are the only superpower. And while no single power in the world can take us down, there are many smaller powers in the world that have learned 
what American entrepreneurs have learned, the power of the network. And we started with John Bolton talking about the network being created by Chavez. And Chavez is working with the Iranian president. The interest of those around the world with some power is to do anything and everything they can to diminish American power. It is in our interest to make sure that those neighbors and natural allies that we have have sufficient internal strength that they do not become the victims of gangs that are funded by their illegal operations and become de facto more powerful than the state in which they happen to be living. This is a serious issue, and if you get out on one of these assessments, it will become very real to you. Anything else? John, can I? Yeah. One comment, perhaps following up on that and, and in the same vein. Um, I, I'd thoroughly urge anybody to, uh, it, I mean, there's a philanthropic uh, aspect to this, but um, there's another aspect, and that is that it, it behooves, and perhaps I'm preaching to the converted here, that maybe all of you already know this, but um, as we go more and more global, um, and I hope I'm correct, and we, we begin to create some kind of regional, uh, some, uh, beyond markets, but some sort of regional structures, uh, there is a premium. Uh, we now see in Arizona, for example, law firms that recruit bilingual people. They say, if you don't speak English and Spanish, don't sign up, because otherwise we will not recruit you. Um, a, 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 the next step will be... Um, people who say, and if you don't have at least some significant grounding in the civil law system, we won't recruit you. Um, so to the extent that you can be exposed to these systems, to different systems and different attitudes and different approaches, uh, I think it's, it's for the good of all of us. And uh, you can be missionaries and bring that back. Uh, I, I also want to offer a gratuitous comment on the, on the distinctions between civil law and common law. Um, I am convinced, because I've seen it, I've, I've worked uh, with judges in Peru and in Chile, uh, this business of the formalistic or the more flexible substantive approach is very much an individual kind of thing. And uh, I think it has a great deal to do with compensation and time. And it's very hard for a judge, for example, in the Mexican Supreme Court for many years, they took every single case they got. They had to dispose of every single case they got, and it was a free justice system. There was no cost, and I mean literally none, other than the paper, to file a complaint, carry it all the way to the Supreme Court, and they had to deal with it. Judges who are under that kind of caseload have a hard time in, in finding the opportunity to reflect and to work out uh, substantive kinds of decisions. It's gotten a lot better now uh, since they reformed their system in 1994. And um, that may explain, or at least it's always explained a lot to me, that it's there's nothing inherent in the civil code per se. I think best civil code jurists and drafters and scholars say that civil code is a a series of general principles with uh, fertile opportunities and flexible 
applications, but not when you don't have the time. Well, thank you all for coming. And again, I urge you to uh, stop by and talk to Peggy Little before you leave. Thank you.